I believe her. And by her, I mean Rachel Mitchell, the Judiciary Committee prosecutor who questioned Christine Ford and says Ford's testimony is not worthy of belief. We will analyze Mitchell's letter right here on the hearings. Then Kanye makes Saturday Night Live great again, and Jeff Flake somehow manages to degrade himself even further. I knew you didn't think it was possible. President Trump fulfills yet another major campaign promise that everyone said was impossible. Liawatha Liz Warren's Republican opponent, Jeff Deal, stops by hoping to raise heap big wampum for his race against, against uh, Spreading Bull. Uh, then we'll go over the secrets to a long life. And Charles Aznavour dies. I'm Michael Knowles, and this is The Michael Knowles Show. Oh, so much to go over today. We get to believe her. We get to believe her, but the Democrats don't believe her. But we'll talk about why we have to believe all believable women. (laughs) But first, let's let's talk about BattleBox. This is very important. This is very important, fellas. I'm speaking, look, this could be gender neutral, but I think I'm mostly talking to the fellas here. Most subscription boxes are full of samples that you'll never use not BattleBox. It's a monthly subscription box for men. Okay. I'll say it. I'll say it. I know I don't sound like a seventh wave feminist here, but it's for men. It's full of solid gear for adventure seekers, survivalists, and outdoor enthusiasts. It is super cool. A monthly subscription for handpick outdoor survival, everyday carry around gear. Uh, it is so good when they sent it to us. The, uh, one of the things it comes with is just like several giant awesome knives and hatchets and things. So obviously uh, Drew got a box, I got a box, and then we just started chasing each other around trying to like jab at each other with it. But fortunately we all had knives to fend them off. Don't try that at home. Go to trybattlebox.com, B-A-T-T-L-B-O-X.com, no E, slash Knowles, K-N-O-W-L-E-F's. Pick the box you want. They start at just 25 bucks per month. They are so cool. They have all other sorts of stuff too, like sleeping bag stuff and camping stuff and make a coffee. I don't know. I'm not a big survivalist type guy, but now that I saw all the cool knives, I am. I'm completely in. They've shipped over half a million boxes. They won best men's subscription box of 2017. It's a great gift for guys. And if you're a guy, it's a great gift for yourself. Treat yourself. Right now, our listeners get a free tactical knife when you sign up for your first battle box. Try battlebox.com slash Knowles, K-N-O-W-L-E-S. Try BattleBox, B-A-T-T-L-B-O-X dot com slash Knowles, K-N-O-W-L-E-S. Get your free BattleBox plus, or get your first BattleBox plus the free tactical knife at trybattlebox.com slash Knowles. Okay, we are in battle, aren't we? We're in the heat of battle right now. And we have got, we have got to believe her. We've got to believe Rachel Mitchell. This is so beautiful. You remember during the hearings, none of the guys on the panel wanted to be the ones asking questions of Christine Ford because whatever they asked her would be twisted and and they would be made out to be misogynists and sexists and whatever. So actually, whenever the panel did speak to Christine Ford, they, they varied questions between, can I give you a foot massage to what kind of tea would you like me to make for you? It was so pathetic. Chuck Grassley, anything you want, whatever you, it's okay. Oh, I might want a little coffee, tee hee hee. Oh, well, whatever. Okay, blah, blah, blah. So they hired this prosecutor, Rachel Mitchell, to ask her the pointed questions because she was a woman and she sort of was nice. And so, okay, they had her do it. So we watched the testimony and Democrats said that, she, that Ford was very credible. Some Republicans even said that Ford was credible, though I did not say that Ford was credible because her testimony wasn't credible. And Rachel Mitchell now agrees with us. She sent out a memorandum. We have it right here. I'll just give you the highlights in case you haven't had a chance to read it, though I do recommend reading it because it's very good. So uh, 
Rachel Mitchell admits in the beginning of it, she says, while I am a registered Republican, I'm not a political or partisan person. So she comes right out. She says, look, I am a registered Republican. I've never, you know, I've never seen Rachel Mitchell on the campaign trail. I don't see her at, at Tea Party rallies or anything like that. But she says, okay, I'm putting that out there right now. Uh, then she goes on. She says, in the legal context, here is my bottom line. A he said, she said case is incredibly difficult to prove. But this case is even weaker than that. Dr. Ford identified other witnesses to the event, and those witnesses either refuted her allegations or failed to corroborate them. For the reasons discussed below, I do not think that a reasonable prosecutor would bring this case based on the evidence before the committee, nor do I believe that this evidence is sufficient to satisfy the preponderance of the evidence standard. This is what we have all been saying this entire time, isn't it? We've been saying there are holes here. It seems weak. It doesn't even seem like it, it reaches the threshold where we should take it seriously. So she goes on for pages and pages. Here are just a few of the highlights. Dr. Ford has not offered a consistent account of when the alleged assault happened. She hasn't. She said, and to the Washington Post, she said it was the mid-80s. To uh, Dianne Feinstein, she said it was the early 80s. Then in the polygraph, she said it happened one high school summer in the early 80s. But then before she fully did the polygraph, she crossed out the word early. She didn't give an explanation as to why. Then she was 15. Then she was 16. Who knows? Who knows when, when this was? Was she in her early teens? Was she in her late teens? Uh, she told the committee she was 15. Okay, who knows? She, uh, the Mitchell goes on, Dr. Ford has struggled to identify Judge Kavanaugh as the assailant by name. She didn't do it until, oh, just about five seconds ago. That's a little strange. Uh, when speaking with her husband, Dr. Ford changed her description of the incident to become less specific. Yep. Dr. Ford has no memory of key details of the night in question, details that could help corroborate her account. This is really weird because by all accounts for, from what Dr. Ford is saying, she suffered this intense assault. And they, not only what she describes is some guys groping her. What she then says is, I thought they were going to rape me. I thought they were going to kill me. She said she thought they were going to kill her. I don't know how that she got there, but that's what she said. Uh, she said she remembers all of these, where the bed was. She went into the bathroom and then the guys were talking, and, but then the music was too loud. So she couldn't hear them talking, but then she could hear them talking, whatever. And, uh, but then she can't say how she got there and she can't say who drove her home by, uh, as, as the crow flies, her house was apparently seven miles away from where the party was. So, she, so someone drove her home, but she doesn't remember who. So if she suffered this intense trauma, would she not, and she remembers those details, would she not remember how she got home, who drove her home? Because now she's always changed which people were there and who was there at the time or whatever. Now she says there was another person, she names all the people there, all of whom refute her account. And then she says, but there was one other person who I forget. I forget who it was and I can't describe them and no one's come forward. Okay. All right. Little suspect. Uh, she says, uh, Mitchell goes on, Dr. Ford's account of the alleged assault has not been corroborated by anyone she identified as having attended, including her lifelong friend. This is the big one. Her, her lifelong friend, Leland Kaiser, the girl who she says was, you know, she was there at the party. Uh, I, I can understand why if the men were lying, that why they would lie, right? They say, oh no, I didn't, I wasn't there. I didn't see it. I didn't, whatever. But what motive would her lifelong friend Leland Kaiser have to lie? None at all. She'd have every incentive to corroborate Ford's testimony. And instead, Leland Kaiser didn't just say that she wasn't there, that Kavanaugh wasn't there. She said, I have never met Brett Kavanaugh in my life. So, okay, that's a little strange, isn't it? Doesn't seem to lend a lot of credibility to Ford. Said, Dr. Ford has not offered a consistent account of the assault. Yep. 
you know, initially there were four men in the room, then it was two men in the room, then it was this many at the party, then that many. Okay. Her account of who was at the party has been inconsistent. Yep. Dr. Ford has struggled to recall important recent events relating to her allegations and her testimony regarding recent events raises further questions about her memory. That's exactly right. She doesn't, she, she won't turn over her therapy notes, which are apparently some evidence for this assault. She won't turn them over to the Judiciary Committee, but she can't recall whether she gave them to the Washington Post or not. So th- that was, you know, eight weeks ago or less than eight weeks ago. She can't recall that. She, oh, I'm not quite sure. She then says that she thought it was her civic duty to contact the Senate and the president as soon as possible. That's why she hastily sent all of this out. But actually, she contacted the Washington Post. So was that her sit before she contacted any of those people? And her congressman, she knew how to contact her congressman, but not her senator. That's a little strange too, isn't it? And, she, and again, she won't provide any of the notes to the committee. Finally, Mitchell says, she alleges that she struggled academically in college, but she's never made any similar claim about her last two years of high school. This brings the timeline into question, and it also brings in the question of how this caused all of these awful things in her life. Christine Ford says that she can't fly. She has a fear of flying because directly related to this alleged event because she's afraid of enclosed spaces and all of this. But in, in other testimony, she said that she's uh, traveled around. She flew to Washington, D.C. She flies to the Mid-Atlantic at least once a year. She's flown to Hawaii, French Polynesia, Costa Rica. But she couldn't fly to D.C. to testify before the committee. Pretty strange, isn't it? The committee offered to go to California. Christine Ford, she just never heard about that. Somehow, it never came up, okay? Uh, and then also, she, she said that the alleged assault contributed to her apparent psychological issues. But she used the word contributed. She doesn't say caused. Uh, now, well, I wonder why that is, because clearly, clearly the woman has issues. But the question, are, the question is, what were they caused by? Where do they come from? What specifically are the issues? Okay. After reading just that, just and those are just the highlights. There's a lot more. You should go read the whole thing. We can conclude, I think, that Christine Ford's testimony is not worthy of belief. Nevertheless, the Democrats are doubling down. So they don't believe all women because they don't believe Rachel Mitchell. But I believe I believe women who should be believed. That's my that's my hashtag. It's not it's it's a little long. It's a little clunky when it comes out of the mouth. But uh, I I definitely believe Rachel Mitchell. Uh, it's amazing too because it's. I never said I believe all women. Why would I believe? I don't believe all. I don't believe Hillary Clinton. <laughs> I don't. You know, there are a lot of women I don't believe. I don't believe Tawana Brawley. I don't believe Jackie Coakley. I don't believe a lot of women. But uh, Democrats are the one who say we have to believe all women, and then they turn around and for, and obviously, Karen Monahan, Juanita Broderick, anyone who is a victim of an assault <laughs> or a, a, alleges being the victim of an assault at the hands of a Democrat, they don't believe them. Karen Monahan has medical records. It's a lot better than whatever Doctor Ford is spinning her story this week. Uh, but I do believe Rachel Mitchell. She, she gives a, a lot of evidence. She goes through it very methodically. I, I believe it. So I'm convinced less and less by the day that Dr. Ford is telling the truth. Whether she's lying, I don't know. Whether she's crazy, I don't know. Whether she's mistaken, I don't know. Whether memory changes over 30 years, sure, uh, of course it does. But I'm less convinced by the day. And I think America is too. Uh, I really, do. I mean, they're going to wait now with this FBI investigation, they're going to wait for more crazies to come out of the woodwork and say that, uh, you know, Brett Kavanaugh abducted them in the late 70s and took them to, you know, planet Zebulon 7 or something. But I don't, I don't really buy it. I don't think this is playing well with the American people. This is also a lesson to conservatives because a lot, with this allegation and with other allegations, 
conservatives are so desperate to be the good guys because very often it's conservatives who are talking about virtue. The left virtue signals, but the right talks about virtue itself. And they kind of eschew the Saul Alinsky Machiavellian politics, um, immorality in politics as a principle. So we want to be the good guys. We want to be seen as the good guys. We want to believe people. We want to assume good intentions. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should be a little more skeptical sometimes. Because I heard a lot of people saying a lot of nice things about Christine Ford. Uh, Even during the hearings. Even after it was clear that her story was changing. Even after the political influences were clear. Even after it was clear that Feinstein gave her a lawyer. Even after all things started. But they kept saying, oh, well, I don't know. She seems like a good person. I don't know. Maybe she's a good person. Maybe she's not. But we should maybe be a little harder edged about these things. So one of the reasons that people took... Christine Ford seriously, is that she's a distinguished professor. She's a professor at Palo Alto College. So clearly she couldn't be a crazy person because no crazy people ever go into academia, right? That never happens. So as if on cue, (laughs) as if on cue, this woman on Twitter who is a distinguished associate professor at Georgetown University, their words, not mine. I didn't call her distinguished. That's the title in quotes. Uh, She tweeted at this. She said, quote, Look at this chorus of entitled white men justifying a serial rapist's arrogated entitlement. Apparently now Kavanaugh is a serial rapist. He went from allegedly groping a girl at some point whenever to being a serial rapist. Just keeping you up to date. The woman goes on. All of them deserve miserable deaths while feminists laugh as they take their last gasps. Bonus, we castrate their corpses and feed them to swine? Yes, I'm not making that up. That is a real tweet from this woman, Christine Fair, distinguished associate professor at Georgetown. You know how else you can tell Christine Fair is a serious person? She has those parentheses around her name because there are Nazis all around us. This is something that unserious people do uh, because two years ago when the alternative right was a thing for like five seconds, the 20 people in the alternative right, the the racist group, uh, they, they put parentheses around their name to identify themselves as Jewish. So... Uh, some hysterical people still do that to this day, and uh, she's one of them. <laughs> so, so you know, she's super duper serious. Um, uh, it, all nature is but art unknown to thee. So, as we're talking about Doctor Ford, the serious, distinguished professor, Doctor Ford of Palo Alto College, could never tell a lie. We rem- we remember that a lot of professors are absolutely out of their minds, such as Christine Fair wishing death upon all men and wanting to castrate them. And, and I mean, this is a woman who ostensibly is teaching children. So uh, we remember that. And we know that this is a trope, the crazy professor, the loony professor with the crazy hair, head in the clouds, spouting a lot of nonsense. Uh, but it isn't just in academia. SNL decided to, they're going to take their shot. They're going to take their swing at Kavanaugh. Uh, here it is, because it, it Show, it really shows you a page out of the, the left-wing playbook. What? Judge, <laughs> Judge Kavanaugh, are you ready to begin? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you this. I'm going to start at an 11. I'm going to take it to about a 15 real quick. <laughs> First of all, I showed this speech to almost no one. Really funny, isn't it? Isn't that really funny? Get it? Because he was angry. Why was he angry? I don't know. Maybe because they're calling him a rapist. Would they, could that be why? So this is what they do. They go out and they, first of all, they come up with this totally uncorroborated 
charge that he groped a girl. And then they use that to transform it into he groped a girl at a party, at a drunken party once, to he's a serial rapist who rang gang rape circles. And uh, and then they accuse him of this before the public, try to destroy his reputation, his life, a, a life's worth of uh, integrity, a life's worth of a good reputation, his family, all of this. And then SNL comes and goes, ha, ha, look, he got angry. <laughs> what a, oh, I, yeah, well, okay, calm down, Brett. You just called him a gang rapist. Yeah, he's going to get a little angry. You, I'm, are you kidding me? Are you, you take a, a life's worth of hitherto unquestioned uh, integrity and then try to rip it apart? Yeah, he's going to get a little angry. So that's what SNL does. That's the left-wing playbook. The left makes up absurd slander, libel, flings it at you, and then judges you for reacting. Well, you can't react. You're not allowed to, only the left can react. The left has been a bunch of hysterical children since November, well, for a long time, but certainly since November 9th, 2016. No, and the pink hats and the genitalia on their heads and the whatever. And then finally, a Republican shows a little emotion and, and tells them that they're being disgraceful. And they say, whoa, calm down, buddy. You're not allowed to react. Only we can have emotions. Two words, guys, two words. So that was the kind of, fake, uh, you know, pre-written, scripted uh, left-wing response. But then the unscripted response, the not approved by the censors response came later in the show from musical guest Kanye West. I was going to press it. You know, it's like the plan they did uh, to take the fathers out of the home and promote welfare. Does anybody know about that? That's a democratic plan. And so many times I talk to like a white person about this and I say, how could you like Trump? He's racist. Well, uh, if I was concerned about racism, I would have moved out of America a long time ago. We don't just make out of And when I said I'm running 2020, all my smart friends now you got a situation where we need to have a dialogue and not a diatribe. Because if you want something to change, it's not going to change the TV, LA, New York, writers, rappers, musicians. So it's easy to make it seem like it's so, so, so one-sided. Preach! Preach, Kanye! If that audio didn't sound great to you, it's because it came from Chris Rock's Snapchat or Instagram or something. NBC didn't air that. It's Kanye West on stage. NBC cuts the cameras. He's got his MAGA hat on. And he, when he opened up and he said, yeah, uh, Democrats came, took the fathers out of the home, got blacks hooked on welfare. That's a Democrat plan. Did you know about that? I thought I was I certainly living in the matrix at that point. I also, you got to remember, this comes around because of, uh, was it Scott Adams, uh, Candace Owens, friend of the show, Candace Owens. I think, I know that in the church, you're not supposed to go through the process of beatification until long after you're dead. You're not, you know, those are the stages to become a saint. I formally propose Candace Owens for sainthood. I know she, she's pretty young still. She's in her 20s. I formally propose it. If Candace Owens, I like the way Candace Owens thinks, is responsible for this clarity from Kanye West, a major pop culture mover, she deserves St. Saint, Saint Candace. She deserves to be St. Candace of the blessed tweets uh, immediately. She has done a wonderful job. This was terrific. And talk about, you know, talk about the mainstream versus the subversive, the mainstream versus the underground. 
even Kanye West isn't getting this on TV. This is on Chris Rock's Snapchat that he caught it live. Kanye West coming out there and saying, nah, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. We are not going to have, even though you hear it from musicians in Hollywood and the mainstream media, it sounds like there's only this one-sided view of things. But a lot of Americans, myself, Kanye West included, reject it. This is a beautiful thing. This is a really, really beautiful thing. And it, it makes me question a lot of the public opinion polls and all this blue wave stuff. Because every so often, the mainstream media, they, a little honesty leaks through. <laughs> and that's what I think is, is going on here. So in the meantime, you've got some of Kavanaugh's uh, former classmates at Yale coming out and saying, you know, Kavanaugh used to drink a lot at Yale. Kavanaugh said he didn't drink that much, but I think he drank that much. That's, this is the big new revelation. Let me tell you something. I come from the same alma mater as dear Brett Kavanaugh. People at Yale are booze hounds. That's absolutely true. But if Brett Kavanaugh says, I didn't drink a lot at Yale, that, that is a perfectly fair statement because you can be, if you're a, like a total booze hound by regular standards, you're probably middle of the pack at Yale. You might be even a little like toward the teetotaling end of things. Yeah. Okay. I mean, and even take the whole Yale thing out of it. Yeah. The guy drank a lot in college. What? Breaking, breaking news, everybody. College kid drank a lot of beer. Breaking, stop the presses. Okay. And also how pathetic for this guy's classmates to come out and say, hey, I haven't been on TV yet and I feel that I deserve to be on TV. So let me tell you something. I knew a guy who actually did something with his life 30 years ago, 35 years ago, and he drank a lot of beer. Am I still on TV? Where's my powder? I need some powder to, so I can be on, so I can get seven more seconds of fame out of my 15 minutes. Totally pathetic. And that's the best they've got on him. The only, the only corroborating evidence we have for any of these claims is that maybe Brett Kavanaugh had a couple extra beers than he remembers. Okay. <laughs> All right. Cool. Cool, guys. So that's what the left is doing. That's their big accusation. And look at what they're resorting to. There was a political cartoon that went out. It was published all over the place. The cartoon was, uh, the title of it you could see on there was, Kavanaugh's daughter says another prayer. You remember during the testimony, Kavanaugh broke down quite credibly, I will add, Unlike some uncredible testimony, this was quite credible, and said his 10-year-old daughter said that they should pray for the woman, Dr. Ford. So this cartoon comes out. It says, Kavanaugh's daughter says another prayer. Dear God, forgive my angry, lying, alcoholic father for sexually assaulting Dr. Ford. That's the left for you. That's the left for you, America. Those are, that's the Democrats. Attacking a milk-toast federal judge's 10-year-old daughter for praying. That's the left. And you know, they always go after prayers. The left hates prayers. They always, whenever there's a tragedy and decent people say, well, I'm praying for you. They say, I don't want your prayers. How dare you pray for me? Because the left believes that the world is perfectible, that we're going to stop crime and sadness and tragedy and violence and suffering if we just give them a little more money and a little more government power. The right knows that that isn't possible. We're out of the garden. We're, we're not going back to the garden. This world is imperfect and fallen. So we say, well, I'll pray for you. Say, I don't want your damn prayers. They're saying the same thing about this 10-year-old girl now. They're attacking his 10-year-old daughter. It's really despicable. And they're calling him a sexual assailant for, for totally uncredible testimony and allegations that came out at the last minute after the original hearings were wrapped up that no one had ever heard about before from this woman whose story keeps changing. Okay, 
Really, really pathetic. So why is all of this allowed to keep going on? Oh, because of the star of the hour, the man who, the only, so he had to take a break, unfortunately, uh, because Jeff Flake was staring at himself in the mirror, and then he took a quick little break to go on 60 Minutes, and then he went right back to adoring himself in the mirror. Here is Senator Jeff Flake, moral coward and moral idiot, sitting next to Democrat Chris Coons on 60 Minutes. Have your moment, Senator. Senator Flake, you've announced that you're not running for re-election, and I wonder, could you have done this if you were running for no. re-election? <laughs> no, not, not a chance. Not a chance. No, no. Because politics has become too sharp, too partisan. Yeah, there's no value to reaching across the aisle. There's no currency for that anymore. There's no incentive. The reason that he couldn't have done this if he were running for re-election is he would be accountable to his constituents. That's what he's saying. He says, oh yeah, if I, if I were accountable to my constituents, I couldn't possibly do this pathetic, disgusting, cowardly uh, collaboration with Democrats to further destroy this good man's life. I could never have gotten away with that, but ha ha ha, I'm not running for re-election, so I'm totally unaccountable. Disgusting. So I hope he enjoyed himself on 60 Minutes. He does love seeing himself on television. So that's very nice for Jeff Flake. But what he did is so cowardly. He, uh, he, cause he's the one, he's the guy who did it. He said, I will not vote for Kavanaugh unless there's a seventh FBI investigation into him that will analyze all of the statements that we already have from all the people who refute Dr. Ford's testimony. Why did he capitulate? Well, who knows? He might've been planning on it the whole time. The, the proximate reason, the immediate reason is that he was confronted in an elevator by a screaming woman. And this changed his mind. We'll tell you about that that screaming woman. We've looked into her background. But here is the here's the moment that changed Jeff Blake's mind and turned him into even more of a coward than he already was. What you are doing is allowing someone who actually violated a woman to sit in the Supreme Court. This is not tolerable. You have children in your family. Think about them. I have two children. I cannot imagine that if for the next 50 years, they will have to have someone in the Supreme Court who has been accused of violating a young girl. What are you doing, sir? What are you doing? Uh, so that, that woman, she, there are two women there, actually. Uh, Anna Maria Arquila and Maggie Gallagher. They are two high-level George Soros operatives. George Soros-funded left-wing operatives. Sound conspiratorial? Well, sometimes conspiracies are right. Uh, they work for and run the Center for Popular Democracy. This is a left-wing activist group. Soros uh, and Soros's Open Society Foundation is one of the three largest funders of that group. It was a total setup, a total hack job, and uh, Flake fell for it. Or maybe he wanted to go along with it so that he could preen and virtue signal even more rather than having to go through the difficult work of actually displaying virtue. It's a lot easier to virtue signal than to actually display virtue. So there's some misconceptions here. Uh, pushed forward by the the Jeff Flake line of things. Oh, I want to reach across the aisle and everybody, no, just get a fair, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Nobody is going to be convinced by this FBI investigation. Democrats have already said it's worthless because it doesn't get to go on for months and months and years and years. 
Uh, nobody in the middle is going to be convinced by this FBI investigation. Kavanaugh has already had six. We've already got testimony from everybody that could possibly be involved, and the FBI doesn't reach conclusions. So it's completely worthless. Uh, all it will do is further inflame passions. It'll leave the Democrats unmollified, and more lunatics will have time to come out of the woodwork and accuse Kavanaugh of whatever they're going to accuse him for. Uh, really pathetic. So we're still talking about Brett Kavanaugh, thanks to Jeff Flake, moral coward, moral idiot. There is some good news today, though, and then I've got to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. But before we do that, I want to remind you that this administration is chug, chug, chugging along and making America great again. They've reached a deal on NAFTA. You remember, this was a major Trump campaign promise. We're going to renegotiate NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement between Canada, the United States, and Mexico. They say it's being unfair to Americans and it's threatening American jobs. We're going to defend American workers finally. There had been a bipartisan consensus on NAFTA. The, it was signed under Bill Clinton, uh, pushed by Newt Gingrich, backed by both Republicans and Democrats. And, but there were some losers to NAFTA, and in particular, the American worker in certain segments. So Trump made it a major pillar of his campaign that he was going to renegotiate NAFTA. For months now, we've heard, he's got getting into fights with Canada in Mexico, and they all hate him, and everybody hates him, and he can't work out a deal, and it's never going to happen. Well, no, 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 no. They worked out a deal. A little while ago, they worked out the deal with Mexico. Then Canada was threatening not to join in. Canada joined in. They worked out a deal. The stocks, uh, the markets in the United States, Canada, and Mexico, all trading higher today. The S&P is up 0.7%. The Dow is up over 250 points. The uh, Canadian dollar and the Mexican peso are both up. So what is in the deal? Is it only cosmetic? Is it a major change? There are some changes in here. Uh, the deal raises the threshold for auto, auto production, automobile production in North America uh, to qualify for zero tariffs. It raises that threshold from 62.5% to 75%. That's a pretty significant increase. Uh, it says up to 40% of parts for tariff-free automobile sales must come from high-wage factories. So that means moving all of production out of Mexico. and not, We're no longer going to have this huge amount of production in Mexico. Some of that will come back to the U.S. and to Canada. Uh, now, this is not indexed to inflation. So what will the effect of that be over time? Maybe it won't be insane. But still, that's a, that's a really solid concession for the American worker. It uh, means relief from future auto tariffs uh, for Canada and Mexico. So the free traders who say that tariffs don't work, they are mollified here. Because Trump has said time and time again, I want zero tariffs, but I want there to be actual free trade and actual fair trade. Plus there's a win for American cheese and wine. You know, a lot of this, the issue with Canada has uh, centered around uh, Canada having its own dairy tariffs. Uh, so, um, you know, this hurts the American dairy industry. Trump said, we're not going to permit that anymore. Justin Trudeau said, you know, this was a crime against peopleanity because humanity is, and that's not who people, who, who daughter in it, that's kinder, that's nicer. Um, he said that was a really bad thing. He, he, he was obviously bluffing. They fixed that. This is a big win. And the point I'll leave you on with this is uh, Donald Trump is being excoriated for making this comment about Kim Jong-un over the weekend. He was at a rally on Saturday and he said, quote, this is, this is like pretty Trumpy, even for President Trump. He said, I was really tough and so was he. And we were going back and forth. And then we fell in love. Okay. No, really. He wrote me beautiful letters and they're great letters. We fell in love. He 
He's talking about North Korean monster Kim Jong-un. We fell in love. Why did he use that diction? Because it gets headlines, right? It grabs people's attention. It gets headlines. Okay. And because Kim Jong-un is, is watching this, probably scratching his fat little head and thinking, what the hell is this president thinking? <laughs> Who is this guy that I'm talking to? And uh, so he says, we fell in love. Okay. Everyone's, oh no, this is a travesty. Oh no, no, no. President Trump said he was going to renegotiate our agreements with NATO. Everyone lost their minds. What happened? Our NATO allies started paying more of the bill, more of the bill that they were already supposed to pay. He says, we're going to renegotiate NAFTA. Everyone says it's going to plunge the world into global economy. What happens? We renegotiate NAFTA. All the markets increase. The U.S. has the strongest market we've had in a very long time. The economy is doing extraordinarily well. Record low joblessness. We've uh, brought North Korea more to the negotiating table than we have in a very long time. We've worked out a pretty serious and nuanced strategy in Syria and the Middle East, certainly more nuanced than we have in years. We've uh, defended our allies in the Middle East. We've hurt our enemies. We've renegotiated foreign aid and aid to the United Nations. Maybe just trust this guy on the negotiations. I'm not saying put your faith in princes. I'm just saying at a certain point, you're, you're your outrage has to run out. It's got to become a little tedious, doesn't it? If every moment the world is about to end because of something that Donald Trump says, some outrageous statement, and then it doesn't end, don't you get tired after a while? Don't you think, hmm, maybe he knows what he's doing. Maybe he's okay at being the president. Maybe he's pretty good at it, actually. That's my take on the we fell in love with Kim Jong-un. I don't, I don't know what Melania thinks of that we fell in love. Maybe this is going to be the next Michael Avenatti case. I've got to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. We've got Jeff Deal coming up. He is challenging Senator Liawatha in Massachusetts. And he's, he's going to tell us a little bit about the campaign and, and the blue wave and the red wave. <laughs> um, then we've got the keys to a long life. And before we go, Charles Navour died, one of the great crooners that nobody knows about. But we'll talk about him. All of that, if you go to dailywire.com. I'm sorry, if you're on Facebook and YouTube, I've got to say goodbye to you. Go to dailywire.com. You get me, The Andrew Clayman Show, The Ben Shapiro Show. Ask questions in the mailbag. That's coming up on Thursday. Ask questions in the conversation. That's coming up. None of that matters. This is what matters. The, mm? Mm, mm-hmm. You know what that tastes like? That Because t- this is a local brew. This is a local brew from Los Angeles. This tastes like Kavanaugh committee spectator Alyssa Milano's tears. She, did you know Alyssa Milano was there at the hearings for some reason? I don't know why. She was probably just there. I guess, I don't know if I'm telling tales out of school from the Daily Wire. We, we sent her. We, we invested in this because we knew that if she were sitting there in front of Brett Kavanaugh, she would work up the most delicious, only, only the most beautiful uh, leftist tears that we could fill into our tumbler and provide to you all. That's just $100 for an annual membership. Go to dailywire.com. We'll be right back. We've got Jeff Deal, Massachusetts state representative. He's challenging Liz Warren, Senator Liawatha, chief spreading bull. Uh, He's hoping to raise some heat big wampum for his race. Don't forget a Republican held that seat in very recent memory. It could happen again and everyone's calling for a blue wave, but I don't really buy it, especially not in the Senate, especially if we get Kavanaugh through. Here is my uh, quick interview with Jeff Deal, then we'll talk about the keys to a long life. Representative Deal, thank you for being here. Michael, thank you for having me on. So you are going after one of my absolute favorite targets in Massachusetts, Chief Liawatha herself, Focahontas Elizabeth Warren. 
Uh, obviously, there's, there was a Republican uh, who had her seat not too long ago, and, uh, but she's snuck in there and she's one of the more radical members of the U.S. Senate. What are you running on? What are you, what are you going after her for? And uh, what do you think your chances are? Well, first of all, Elizabeth Warren's probably the most divisive voice down in Washington, D.C. Yep. I mean, she shows that you cannot work with Republicans on everything. She tries to politicize every single thing, including, uh, you know, the, the Kavanaugh nomination. I mean, she's out there uh, now trying to fundraise off the, uh, the issues going on with the vetting. Uh, she called for the 25th Amendment a few weeks ago. There's nothing Elizabeth Warren won't do to try to divide Americans for her own personal gain. Uh, and that's what Massachusetts citizens are seeing. That's why I won my primary three weeks ago overwhelmingly. They know that uh, in Massachusetts, I have a track record of actually cutting taxes. I was able to save over $2 billion when I led the repeal of an index gas tax, whereas Elizabeth Warren has delivered nothing for Massachusetts. And now it's clear she wants to run for the White House uh, and continue to do nothing for our state. Um, I think people are waking up to that, and we're showing polling that uh, gives us a lead with independence. I think she sees the same polling because she challenged me to three debates uh, the night that we won the primary. Wow, that that is uncommon. You would think she'd want to run away from debates as the incumbent, but maybe she's she's worried about that. I'm from New York. I live in California. I understand the issue of r- running as a Republican in those states, but you've been a supporter of the president. Uh, you, you worked on his campaign in 2016. How do you think that's going to play? Is, uh, the, are the midterms going to be a referendum on the president? What's that going to mean for blue states that didn't vote for him in 2016? Uh, what, what kind of line do you have to walk in the campaign? Well, just as a background, in 2016, 20,000 Democrats unenrolled to vote in the Republican primary which ultimately gave Donald Trump 50% of the vote with 13 candidates in the field. So if you think about that, it was his largest margin of victory till he hit his home state of New York. So the fact of the matter is people in Massachusetts are seeing the success of the president, whether it's the economic uh, tax reform of 2017 that's given us in our state this last fiscal year over a billion dollars in new revenue based on all the uh, uh, wage increases. Plus, we have country leading low unemployment. We're at 3.5%. I know the nation is around 3.8%. We're doing very well in Massachusetts. Elizabeth Warren wants to undo the tax reform. She's vowed to repeal that. And the other thing that uh, she wants to do is raise individual taxes. So fact of the matter is, economically, people in Massachusetts know that she's not really going to be good for them. Uh, And the other thing, too, is I think uh, it's clear she wants to run for the White House. Uh, She's been making uh, moves. She's been spending time out of state. So this state is looking for someone who's going to deliver, have a seat at the table in Washington. Having supported the president, I'll be able to work with the White House and a Republican-controlled Senate to deliver for Massachusetts. Well, I'm hoping that she gets that nomination for the presidency because she's one of the wackiest candidates out there. I mean, she's so far left. She's so unlikable. She's so divisive. And she politicizes the, you know, she's politicizing these Kavanaugh hearings to raise heat big wampum for her campaigns. And I I really do hope that that redounds to your benefit. I'm also thrilled that you're not running away from the White House. I know a lot of times in blue states, Republicans run away from national Republicans. And I think it's always a mistake. I think they, it always hurts them when you don't stand for something. Um, but what do you think that this uh, midterm election is going to look like? We've been told by the experts that there is going to be a blue wave across the country. And I don't really buy it, unless we don't confirm Kavanaugh, perhaps. I don't really see it happening. Where, where do you think that stands nationally? 
Well, to be honest with you, nationally, um, I don't think it's going to be a blue wave. I think it's going to be blue undertow. Uh, the fact that they seem to stand <laughs> against tax reform uh, that's benefiting the middle class, the fact that they're against law enforcement, because nationally they stand for sanctuary city status or sanctuary state status. Elizabeth Warren, same thing, wants to eliminate ICE, uh, an agency that's working to protect the people of my state, the cities, the communities, uh, by deporting those who are here illegally committing crimes. Uh, she wants to, to uh, get rid of ICE, the, the, those people doing that work. And at the same time, she also, uh, I don't know if you remember this, when um, that college student Molly Tibbetts uh, was murdered by someone who was in the country illegally and should have been deported before that murder was even committed. She said the real problem is families being separated at the border. She's so out of touch with what wow. really is, is hurting Americans. And in Massachusetts, we have a young man named Matthew Denise who was killed uh, by an illegal immigrant who had a track record that should have had him deported years before he committed that murder. Uh, his mother, Maureen Maloney, is separated permanently from her son. And uh, that's the families that I want to try to work towards protecting. And I think ICE is important to have. So nationally, if Democrats keep doing this, of course, they're making a big mistake. In Massachusetts, that's why I've been able to get the endorsement of law enforcement to the point where I even have the Boston Patrolman's uh, Union giving me their endorsement, something that's very rare uh, for, for uh, Republicans. That does not to happen to Republicans. That's right. That's right. Well, that's a, that's a wonderful point. And I, I do notice on your lapel, it looks like you have a thin blue line uh, flag lapel because you've got Democrats now, including Liz Warren, in many ways leading the charge, saying, I'm not just opposed to certain immigration policies, or I prefer one law over the other. They're, they're saying, I oppose law enforcement per se. Who cares, you little people, if you've passed your laws? I, I, ref, I don't want any enforcement of that law because I know better than you do. I can't imagine. Look, I know Massachusetts is a blue state, but I know a lot of people from Massachusetts too. I can't imagine that when you're talking to people on the street, they're, they're the sort of people who will say, yeah, I hate the cops. I don't want any cops. I don't want law enforcement. That just seems to be such an elitist disconnect. There really is a disconnect. And I'll tell you something. We've got a state Senate that tried to, in this last budget cycle, uh, insert sanctuary state status. And it was rejected by the uh, conservative Democrats in our House. I serve in the House of uh, Representatives here. Uh, thankfully, we were able to reject that. But we also have lo uh, judges uh, like a Tim Feely in Salem, who actually put a heroin dealer back on the streets based on his immigration status. He actually said during bench conference that if he had been an American citizen, he would have given him jail time for the heroin he was dealing. But because he was an immigrant and would have been separated from his family because he would have been subject to deportation, he decided not to give him a sentence. And so when you have two sets of laws in Massachusetts, and I think this is with judges around the country, and you have Elizabeth Warren undercutting law enforcement and saying we should get rid of ICE, You've combined to say that the Democrat Party nationally and in Massachusetts no longer cares about the rule of law that protects the families of Massachusetts. Yeah, that's right. And I, I followed the race. I know you won the primary solidly. Uh, so I, I really appreciate it. I really uh, appreciate your campaign. I hope that you do well. I hope people listening and watching will send you lots of money so that we can <laughs> propel you because uh, somebody like Elizabeth Warren should be a prime target. We know that uh, that Massachusetts has rejected Democrats, radical Democrats, we, uh, particular policies in the recent era. I think she is gettable. I don't think she's bulletproof. And I wish you the best of luck. I've taken up too much of your time. I know you got to get back to the no, campaign trail, but uh, Representative Deal. But... Sorry, go ahead. Thanks, Mike. No, no, I appreciate that. And yes, this is the state that voted for Scott Brown back in 2010 when he was going to be the 41st vote 
against the Affordable Care Act, yep. the Unaffordable Care Act, really. And uh, look, this state was the model for it. So uh, I think this state is going to vote what's in their fiscal best interest. But if people want to help, they should go to dealforsenate.com, which is D-I-E-H-L-F-O-R, senate.com. I could use all the help I can get because Elizabeth Warren certainly is not just a problem for our state. Her votes also affect everybody in the country. The other reason that people should donate to you and support your campaign is because I can't wait for your future campaign book, The Art of the Deal. That is going to be a terrific piece of campaign literature. (laughs) And that is going to be great. That'd be great for the country. Uh, Representative Deal, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Michael. Mr. Deal, future senator about to hack away at the at the Liz Warren campaign, at the Liz Warren incumbency. (laughs) Uh, Okay, we're obviously a little close, but I've got to get to the most important thing of the day, which is the keys to a long life. Because I just found out, I was reading this headline, I am going to live forever. I am, the, the keys to a long life, this was a headline over the weekend, quote, drinking Dr. Pepper and smoking cigars, centenarians share their secrets to living past 100. And I love this. I I spoke at Franciscan University of Steubenville over uh, last week, at the end of last week, and we were talking about the simple joys of being right. Uh, You can catch the speech. I think it's online. I think we broke it out. The the seven simple joys of being right. And uh, one of them is, uh, well, I I won't ruin the speech. All of them lead in to us really enjoying life. And uh, so Richard Overton, he's 112 years old. He's the oldest army vet. He's one of the oldest living Americans. I think one of the oldest living people. Um, He smokes 18 cigars a day. He drinks whiskey in his morning coffee. His favorite foods are catfish, gravy, macaroni and cheese. He still drives his 1970s Ford. This guy is great. He was in Cigar Aficionado. That's how I first found out about him. Uh, He's smoking cigars all the time. Uh, Elizabeth Sullivan, 106 years old, she drinks a, uh, a, you know, Dr. Pepper every single day. And she said the doctors keep telling her that it's poison and it's going to kill her, but they keep dying. So there's got to be a mistake somewhere in there. I, I really like this because it, you know, one aspect of lefty culture right now is hating death. I think they've always hated death. And so these Silicon Valley types are always trying to find a cure to death. We're going to end death in this generation. We're going to figure out a way to cure death and we'll live forever. By the way, there is a way to live forever, but we'll get to that in all the religious questions in the mailbag on Thursday. So they talk about that. And then all these other lefties, they do the same thing to one degree or another. That's what all of the crazy diets are about. Veganism and GMOs and that and whatever. It's all about trying to squeeze a little bit more time out of this life, a couple more months, a few more years. But the, the cost of that is that you can't enjoy life. Having a little whiskey, smoking cigars, drinking Dr. Pepper. These are some of the joys of life. If you don't, if you don't do those things, what are you living for? Uh, one of the aspects, when you stop believing in some fantasy that you're never going to die on this earth, that you're going to live forever, that we're going to create utopia, when, any aspect of that left-wing f- fantasy vision, when you abandon that, when you stop trying to do something that isn't possible, then you can actually enjoy life. And I'm glad that these centenarians are all enjoying life. And I hope Mr. Overton has a whiskey and a stogie for me today. Uh, in the final bit of news, one of the great crooners, Charles Navour, has died. He is the French-Armenian crooner. They call him the French Frank Sinatra. He was like this five-foot-tall Armenian 
guy. I think he might have been born in France. His father was an immigrant. Maybe he was an immigrant. And he was just one of the greats. He was so, he was pretty weird, a little radical, uh, but so smooth, so charming. Uh, very few people in America ever listen to him anymore, but they should. So RIP to Mr. Aznavour, and I will leave you on uh, this note. Charles Aznavour singing, you are the one for me, formidable. <laughs> You are the one for me. For me? Formidable. You are my love, very. The Michael Knowles Show is produced by Senia Villarreal. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer, Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Jim Nickel. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. The Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018.